This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends, Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive director and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm great. It's good to be back together with the two of you and with all of our listeners. I may have mentioned in the past that I was in the middle of a home improvement project, and that project is now completed. So I'm super poor, but but we have a really nice renovated basement. And while I was doing some DIY part of that project, I was doing all the painting of the walls and the trim. I caught up on some of my podcast listening. And one thing I was able to do was to go back and listen to a bunch of Things Not Seen episodes that I um, had missed for over the last couple months. So Tony Annette, Bob Smatana, Nicole Flory, and Robert Ellsberg. So I was listening to you, David, in my ear, as well as these great writers and some friends. So that really helped me to do all this manual labor, which I'm going to tell you, this Saturday girl body is not a cutout for it anymore. So thank you. For your great podcast. I love it. I am delighted that was something available to you that brought you some joy and connection to people that you like. Thank you so much for that. Those are kind words. Yeah. And today, of course, is Valentine's Day. So I'm sporting some red here and planning a special dinner for my family. And just wanted to say happy Valentine's Day to you too and to my listeners out there. You'll be hearing this a couple days after Valentine's Day. We're recording it on Valentine's Day. We wish you, uh, for all who celebrate, a happy Valentine's Day. How about you, Dan? How are you doing? I'm good. I very regularly forget it's Valentine's Day. <laughs> so I appreciate, David, your <laughs> caveat about for those who celebrate. I'm not anti-Valentine's Day by any means, but just not one of the feasts that's on my, my rotation. I'm doing well. It's it's also good to be with you both. It's been a busy couple weeks. It's a busy time of year for us, certainly in the academic side of things. We're in full swing of the semester, and actually spring break is just a few weeks away, which is hard to believe. Last week, a shout out to friends in Hartford, Connecticut. I gave the annual Buckley lecture at the University of St. Joseph there. I know there were a few folks who are listeners, and so it's great to see you, and as always, a pleasure. And since this will, this episode will drop before Lent and a number of other things that are happening before the next episode drops, I just want to give a shout out to the Archdiocese of Louisville. I'll be there on March 1st as part of a series of speakers talking at the Archdiocesan Symposium on Anti-Racism. So if you're in the greater Louisville area, look that up at the Archdiocesan website. And that's March 1st. I hope to see you there. David, what have you been up to? What's going on? So 
a couple things. One, in the academic cycle, we are moving towards spring break, but also I am in the semester where my mid-course assessment happens, which means that on the way to tenure, I have to put together a small portfolio and write some narratives about my teaching and my service and other work that I'm doing around the university and in the scholarly guilds. And so that's been a fun distraction for the last few weeks, trying to get all that pulled together. And I'm sure it will go well, but it's just one more thing in the schedule of things to do. The other thing that happened recently that I think is notable is I I actually took a trip. One of the first times that I've traveled since COVID started, I did a masked and distanced trip out to Southern Arizona for a meeting of the Association of Graduate Programs in Ministry and Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities. They had a joint meeting and met some wonderful people, had just a really interesting shift in climate going from, you know, negative 20 degrees here in Chicago to 50 to 70 degrees and very dry there in Southern Arizona and just beautiful country, lots of cacti and just rolling plains with sagebrush and beautiful views. All of that was really good. I do want to note one other thing, though. I was there at a retreat center, and because I was a late registrant to these two conferences, they ended up on the last day, the last night, I should say, before I left, switching my room from one place to another. And so I had gotten used to being in one room, and then they moved me to a room with an entirely different footprint. And it was a larger room. I know that they were giving me the larger room for the reasons that they wanted to say, we're sorry that we inconvenienced you. But I stepped into that room and realized I was going to have to learn how to sleep in a completely different place all over again. And it freaked me out. So I went to the office and I said, hi, I'm neurodivergent. I've gotten used to sleeping in one particular floor plan of room, and I really don't have the energy to figure out how to sleep in a new floor plan. Is it possible? Thank you for giving me a larger room. I realize why you did it. Is it possible to get a room? I realize I can't get the room that I had, but a room that is in some way closer to the room that I had. And thankfully, the person behind the desk was very understanding, showed me two rooms, allowed me to pick the one that felt better to me, and I had a good night's sleep. And I just want to say to listeners out there, You have a right to be comfortable in your own skin, and it's never a problem in a situation like that to speak up and say, hey, I recognize that you were trying to help, but the helping didn't help in this particular case. Could we go back to the way that things were? So I don't know if that's useful to anybody but me, but I just wanted to make sure that people heard that because I think it's important for you to know that it's okay to do things like that. Yeah, good for you for advocating for yourself. Yay. Well, at 53 years old, <laughs> now suddenly I can figure out how to, to advocate for myself a little bit. And all kinds of interactions like that are somewhat embarrassing. You feel put on the spot. But I will also say that I've learned a lot of how to do this from our two children, because helping them to advocate for themselves as neurodivergent people in the world as well has really shown me some tips and tricks and opened up some avenues for me that when I was growing up, I had no idea were there. So families are good for helping you learn how to grow and heal. And uh, I'm just grateful for that. So I also want to note that as we're recording this. It happened in such a time where we had already picked the topics for the conversations today. But as we're recording this last night, there was a horrific shooting at Michigan State University. And I I just want to say, we have covered the topic of mass shootings oftentimes here on The Francis Effect. But it is heartbreaking any time it happens, no matter how many times that we talk about it, Every single one is fresh and individual and horrific, and our prayers are for those that are suffering in the aftermath of this, and our cries to heaven are to our legislators and to others who have power and control in this situation to help to stop this madness. And I just wanted to make sure that before we got into the program, we acknowledged this and just said it's a horrific thing. Yeah, I I was following that closely last night because I do have a loved one at Michigan State, she and her sister are safe, thanks be to God. But there are parents today or last night who are finding out the worst news ever. I will say that what is really striking to me that not only is today the fifth anniversary of the Parkland shooting, which was supposed to be so horrific that it was going to change things and to see how little has changed. 
there was a photo going around the internet last night, and I've seen some other um, sharing that indicates some of the students at Michigan State who were either leaving that building or just on campus had survived other school shootings in their high schools or even elementary schools. And so now we have young people in our country who are surviving multiple school shootings. And just Lord have mercy, this is not the way to run a country. This is not the world we want our our families or anybody. No, and there's a way that even that statistic you just shared with us, Heidi, can suggest that we normalize this and become numb to it because, oh, this happens once, not just once, but many times. And I think as people of faith in particular and listeners to this podcast, I would include most of you as well among the three of us that we can't desensitize ourselves to this, that this is not okay, this is not gospel living, this is not Christian, and people who are radical advocates for quote-unquote gun rights need to think first and foremost about what it means to cultivate a culture of life, and a culture of life begins with protecting human life. So lots to think about. We will continue to keep all those affected in Michigan in our prayers, but let us not grow weary of the work that needs to be done. So on the show today, we're going to take up three topics. We're going to be looking at the recent anti-black studies legislation in Florida and in some other places around the country. We're going to be looking at the really rampant outbreak of anti-trans legislation, both at the state and at the diocesan levels here in 2023. And we'll be looking at the start of Lent. So all of that is coming up on the show. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On February 1st, the first day of Black History Month and the day of Tyree Nichols' funeral, the organization that oversees advanced placement courses in United States high schools released the final curriculum for a new course that had been piloted this past year, a course on African-American studies. That revised curriculum, however, dropped some controversial topics that had been part of the piloted course, topics such as the Black Lives Matter movement, slavery reparations, mass incarceration, black feminism, and queer theory. Those topics had drawn criticism from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who had threatened to ban the course in his state. More recently, DeSantis is saying he may ban all advanced placement courses in Florida. AP courses are college-level classes that students can take in high school, sometimes for college credit. The African American Studies AP course had been tested at 60 high schools around the country, where reportedly it was very popular. The course was developed in consultation with professors from more than 200 colleges and universities, including several historically black institutions. The nationwide AP program is administered by the College Board, an organization that also oversees the SAT test that many colleges require for admission. Although the connection between DeSantis's comments and the course changes was initially unclear, a subsequent release of communications from the Florida Department of Education claims to take credit for the changes. The College Board says that the changes were made after consultations with faculty who taught the pilot course, not in response to the Florida Department of Education or Governor DeSantis. What is not debated is what has been removed. Authors such as Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, and Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality. That, too, has been excised from the curriculum. Black Republicans, such as Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, were added to the syllabus. Of course, Florida legislators passed a law last year that restricts teaching about race in the classroom. The Stop Woke Act prohibits colleges from promoting critical race theory and targets other so-called woke concepts prevalent on higher education campuses. In his criticism of the AP African American Studies course, DeSantis railed against what he called woke indoctrination in schools. Heidi, what do you make of this controversy and why should Catholics care about it? Well, I think Catholics and all Americans are going to have to care about this because this has become the political 
controversy du jour that uh, is going to be part of our discourse for the coming years. Of course, Governor DeSantis is a likely Republican presidential candidate for the next presidential election. And he and others are clearly claiming this, you know, educate wokeness in education or indoctrination, as he calls it, as a political issue that they're hoping will connect with some voters in their base. I have to admit, I had taken an African-American studies course in college as an undergrad at the University of Notre Dame. It was a very important and defining course for me. I also took Black theology courses in graduate school. And I know that the University of Notre Dame was one of those universities that was consulted in the creation of this course and that there was at least one Catholic high school that was piloting it in this past year. There's a lot to criticize here. Obviously, the process by which a politician makes this threat and somehow it's, again, it's unclear because one side is saying one thing and one side is saying the other, but it's awfully coincidental if the threats from Florida governor and from the Board of Education didn't have something to do with the exact things being removed that they were criticizing. Some of those things were kept in as optional possibilities for students to do as outside projects, but they were removed from the core curriculum. It's a little bit challenging because it is a college-level course being taught to high schoolers. And some of this ruhaha around critical race theory that, that some advocates or politicians were trying to stir up about elementary schools or high schools promoting critical race theory when it's really more of a college-level or even a, a law school-level type of thing, Bringing it into high schools, maybe then it does get slightly more controversial or concerned to parents. But I can only say that calling something woke or calling it indoctrination, these are important social justice concepts that are being taught to our children. And I would hope that they would be taught even before high school in our religious ed classes. Kids are hearing this hopefully from the pulpit. This is where I learned all of these things from my family, from my church, from my school. And all this concern about making white students feel bad and everything is just a bunch of hullabaloo, in my opinion. But I'm kind of on my high horse there. I'll step back and see what you guys think. Well, I have lots of thoughts about it. So I'll try to be succinct so that I don't filibuster this segment. One of the first things that comes to mind is a conversation that I had after giving a lecture at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York, a couple years ago. And in the Q&A, a retired high school educator who taught in Catholic schools for decades asked me, what do I make of exactly the kinds of things that we see play out right now with Governor DeSantis in Florida? I can think of my own state of Indiana as another place where the legislature has been trying to micromanage manage the curriculum and this sort of boogeyman creation of critical race theory and all these other things. And they said, well, what do you make of this desire to not make certain students comfortable? And I had a two-part response. One was, well, what students are we talking about? Because minoritized students are made to feel uncomfortable all the time when those who are in predominant positions of, of power, privilege, and comfort, in this case, white folks like myself, are protected and don't have to think, don't have to adjust their own perspective or experience, their views, their experience, their perspectives are considered normative in the standard. And so no one's asking about how Black and Latinx and Asian and other folks are feeling, other students are feeling in this context. The second thing I said was education is inherently uncomforting and uncomfortable because the whole premise is either you're learning something you didn't know before and it reveals your ignorance. That could be as simple as learning math or you're relearning something you thought you knew but have come to discover is wrong. So that may be as simple as biological reproduction or how cells divide or something like this, right? So anyone who's seeking to be comfortable in education is not seeking to be educated. And I think as a professor, as a theologian, as an educator who's given my life in ministry to this, I feel very strongly about that. I also come from a family of teachers. My brother is a high school math teacher. My mom is a junior high teacher. I have many aunts and uncles who are teachers as well, and I take this very seriously. The one other thing I, I will say is the language of critical race theory, something I have actually engaged as a scholar, as an academic, as a professor, I'll just say what's already common knowledge, which is this is a legitimate field of philosophical and legal studies that is not, as you said, Heidi, it's not taught to elementary school students and generally is not taught to high school students, but this infantilizing that comes with treating students who are taking college-level courses like their babies needs to be dismissed. 
they're being granted access to knowledge and learning that is meant for adults, for 18 plus, right, for people who are in college. And I'll just quote, the last thing I'll just say on this is the legitimate field of study. Critical race theory is not something to be ashamed of. It's not a bad thing. It's not a scary thing. It is a legitimate academic subdiscipline of legal studies and philosophy. That said, I want to quote a colleague of mine who teaches at Indiana University. And he said at one point in giving a lecture, that we should stop using this language of critical race theory because like in these debates around science and evolution and religion, the term theory gets squishy in the minds of some people as if this were not resolved, as if this were up in the air, or that it was a matter of opinion. It's not the theory of evolution. It's biological evolution. It's been proven, right? And his point is we should call this critical race history. It's about analyzing our experiences of history based in fact. And just because those facts are uncomfortable for you doesn't change their reality. So I'm in favor of adopting that. I think it's really insightful. I want to take this in a slightly odd direction. And I want to think about the college board as a kind of gatekeeper here. Because as we mentioned, they also administer the SAT. And that for many people has been a a kind of weeder for different access to different college experiences. Certain people who make certain scores on the SAT are expected to go to certain kind of tiers of universities. But I also want to say that gatekeepers oftentimes are very concerned with their own positionality and access. And here's where the weird parallel comes in. I think that there is a parallel here to be made between the college board and the USCCB. When this story first broke, One of the comments that I saw on social media was, well, now I hope that the college board takes a stand and says, well, then Florida won't get any AP courses at all because we will not sully the purity of the learning. And I looked at that and I said, that's never going to happen because organizations like this, above all, they want access to people with authority and access to force. They want to be able to have someone with some authority be able to put them into a privileged position. And this is the parallel that I see between the College Board and the USCCB. I think that the bishops oftentimes will look at vulnerable populations or the teachings of the church that protect the vulnerable, and they'll say, should we really stand up and promote these teachings? Should we really stand up and promote the purity of this message? Or do we still want access? And again and again, I see them choosing access. And so that's the parallel that I see between what the College Board is doing in Florida with this AP curriculum and what I see the bishops doing as well. They want to cozy up to politicians because the politicians give them access to publicity and access to a certain kind of place in the order of things that they find very comfortable. Now, I'm interested in your thoughts on that, but that's the real parallel that I see here. I love the direction you took this, David. And access to money or donors, I think, is often the access issue for lots of folks in education and all nonprofit organizations. I guess one of the things that I wanted to respond to you, Dan, also about the it's just history. It is, but but African-American studies or Black studies as a discipline is interdisciplinary, too. So it's not. And then part of the changes that were wanted or were made about this AP course or to make it more just historical and less about some of the movements and social justice and sociological or economic overlays at intersectionalities of different things in this course and just stick to Black people who did amazing things throughout history or something, which is part of Black studies. But to sanitize it to just that is to do a disservice to the students, to the discipline, to the educational process, as as you said, Dan. And then the other point that I would just make is that part of the reason this course was created, and it had long been discussed, I think, or they, oh, we should do an AP course on this. Then when the murder of George Floyd happened, there was some initiative to let's get this thing going and we got it piloted, was in part because students of color disproportionately are not in AP courses or they are not taking the test and getting the college credit for it. My son is in a selective enrollment program in a Chicago public high school where he is encouraged to take AP courses and may do so in the future. And the idea of offering this course and a course that would be really meaningful was to help with some of those disparities. So it's really sad to see so much politicization of the educational process. And in the end, I can't imagine if I'm a parent in Florida and DeSantis is saying, 
we may not have AP courses in Florida in high schools. That's not going to sell because parents are going to want their kids to be able to take these courses that they can then take to, to other colleges, even out of state. Well, I think you brought up a good point, too, about the effort to sanitize. I like that language, this kind of, I would say, whitewash history. I think critical race history is still apt because what's being presented and maybe some of the accommodations we might say that the College Board has made in acquiescence to DeSantis and the hubbubaloo is the cleaning out of things that make white people, those in predominant positions of power and comfort, uncomfortable. Again, it goes back to this theme that is very attached to Ron DeSantis in particular, although he's not the only one. And so I'm thinking about this, like what would an analogous, inspired by you, David, in your USCCB analogy, what's an analogous church example? It'd be like in our Catholic high schools or colleges teaching a church history course in which we never talk about the church's complicity with chattel slavery, or we never talk about the colonial exercise of the Americas and other parts of the world, or we never talk about clergy sexual abuse and its cover-up by bishops. That's what's being advocated for here. It's only part of the history. And when you have only part of the history, you're replicating and protecting people not from things they should be fearful of, but you're protecting, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes here, people from the truth. And I think that's really saddening. It's really disappointing from an educational perspective. It's disturbing. But I think from a moral perspective, it's very upsetting on the moral level here. And this is going to maybe bridge to what we talk about in the next segment as well, which is not that different in many ways, sadly, is that what we see here again is, I'm, going to, I'm just going to be very direct about this, a certain political party represented by white male power in the state of Florida, scapegoating the weakest in society, the people who are most minoritized and marginalized. And in this case, it is a punching down for political wins. And it's people who are already at the margins, at the peripheries of the way that we collectively tell our story as a nation and as a community. And I think that there's nothing more upsetting to me than to see that dynamic play out. And I'm reminded, of course, of the great prophetic tradition in Scripture of which Jesus is the greatest fulfillment, right? We read that in John's Gospel and the letter to the Hebrews, that we see in all the Old Testament prophets that the thing that God is most upset about is when people in positions of political and social power are harming people who are at the peripheries and margins, the orphans, the widows, those who are minoritized by race or sexual identity or gender identity, we can add the list, right? So I think this is really important. This isn't just political nonsense. There are real consequences, life and death consequences. And I think it's actually a shame that we're miseducating young people. And I think that's you know a curricular concern. I don't think that politicians should be making that choice. It should be left up to the experts. But I'm biased. What can I say? Well, I just want to stay in this vein of comparing what's going on in Florida to contemporary Catholic issues, because when we look at what's being excised from the curriculum, each of those kinds of movements and the kind of way in which grassroots power was mobilized for societal and structural change, that's synodality. That is an example of the kind of mechanisms that Pope Francis is inviting us to bring into our discourse with the Church, and it is exactly those kinds of mechanisms that those that are comfortable with access to certain kinds of authority and state restriction do not want laity, citizens, to understand or to have access to. And so not to be conspiratorial about this, but I really do see these parallels going very deep between the kind of white bread utopia that Ron DeSantis wants to create in Florida and the kind of whitewashed, to use your phrase, Dan, whitewashed church, and one might even say whitened sepulcher, that certain bishops wish to create here in the American context. So I'm laying my cards on the table, too, and saying, this is a problem because we have a choice moving into the 21st century of an authoritarian church or a synodal church, and the battle is very real right now in those that want to suppress the idea of synodality wherever it breaks out. Yeah, very good points. And again, as we said at the outset of this segment and earlier in our opening, this is sadly not a topic that we are going to be one and done with. There's so much more that can be said, and especially as we continue to commemorate Black History Month here in the United States and in the church. This is an issue I'm sure, sadly, we'll be returning to in the future. But for now, you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. As many listeners may be aware, Katie Collins Scott at the National Catholic Reporter has written a number of stories over the past couple of years, which detail the actions at various Catholic dioceses across the country to restrict discussions and inclusion of LGBTQ plus persons. Many of these actions have specifically targeted transgender persons for exclusion, both in terms of their physical presence, but often also restricting language that would acknowledge or affirm their very existence. Disturbingly, the actions of these Catholic dioceses have run parallel to a marked increase in exclusionary laws being put forward, and in some cases passed by state legislatures around the country. At present, the American Civil Liberties Union reports that it is tracking nearly 300 bills in various state legislatures that target LGBTQ plus persons. Some of these bills target books and other media that mention the existence of LGBTQ plus persons. Other bills are designed to restrict the ability of transgender youth to play on specific sports teams or to access locker rooms, bathrooms, and other public facilities. And in some cases, these bills target families and healthcare providers who support youth in their sexuality or gender expressions. David, I know you've been keeping a close eye on these developments. Is this legislation just, quote, more of the same, end quote? Or have there been some shifts in emphasis or tactics that should be especially concerning to us right now? Well, I think as 2023 began, the volume, the temperature, however you want to describe it metaphorically, really ramped up with this legislation. And I think that it is a a kind of change in category and change in temperament of the legislation that we're seeing. And one of the things that I want to make sure to say at the outset is that the common thread that unites much of this proposed legislation, as well as the instructions being drafted by many of the Catholic bishops, is the stark message that gay, lesbian, bisexual, non-binary, and transgender persons should not be visible in public spaces or, in some cases, should not exist at all. And I also want to note that we're in the sixth week of the year, like the year has just started, and already there are four transgender persons who have been murdered in 2023 that we know of. That's Zaki Imanawatajo, Unique Banks, Casey Johnson, and Jasmine Star Mack, all of whom have been killed, again, and these are just the ones that we know about, in 2023. But I also want to say this. This is personal for me. I live in Illinois, and I have members of my immediate family who don't identify along the binary gender spectrum. Here in Illinois, they have relative safety, and I don't fear for them. But just one state south of us in Missouri, I also have family, and they are currently preparing to sell their house and move to a completely different state because of the legislation that is being offered and for consideration and passed down in the state of Missouri. It is legislation that is specifically targeting them and their children, and they are looking at this and saying, they're going to take our children away from us, and our children are not going to be able to thrive and flourish in the way that they wish to grow because of this legislation. And some of the things that are happening at the legislative level that have been reported back to me from my family are really chilling. Things like this. So the state legislature will reach out or members of the state legislature will reach out to conservative and right-wing groups and tell them long in advance, we're going to be bringing this legislation forward, make sure that you have people there, but then they won't announce the legislation publicly until the day before, which means that Groups that are opposed to the legislation have less than 24 hours to prepare and in some cases travel multiple hours to be present and to speak up against this legislation. And even when they are able to mobilize and they do show up in numbers, and this was reported to me as well from a member of my family, a legislator who sponsored some of this legislation was sitting, listening to the the testimony from the groups that were in favor of the legislation. And as soon as the legislator saw that there were many more people in the room who were against the legislation and wanted to speak up on behalf of transgender persons, he got up and left. And when someone called him out on it publicly, he said, I don't know these people. So there's a real lack of level playing field here. There's a real lack of fairness in this process. But also there's just uh, there's so much of this legislation, not just in Missouri, but all over the country that is happening. We need to be very concerned as Catholics. And let me explain why. 
Something that Pope Francis said just recently on his trips to Africa, he said repeatedly that he wanted Africans to become protagonists in their own story. And this is language that he has used also with youth, where he says that he wants youth to be protagonists in the church. And this goes all the way back to his 2015 speech before the United Nations, where he says that he wants the poor and vulnerable to be dignified agents of their own destiny. If we truly take Pope Francis at his word, and it is our job as Catholics to help the vulnerable to become protagonists, to help them to become dignified agents of their own destiny, then we have to listen when the vulnerable are speaking up and saying that they are being told not not only that they can't be visible, but that they can't exist. So that's my initial part of this. And obviously, I've got a lot of personal stake in this. I've got a lot to say, but I'm going to step back. I'd be interested in what the two of you have to say as well. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that whole point you're making about being a protagonist in our own story is part of what we brought up in our editorial at NCR, following up on these stories. And again, kudos to Katie for the reporting she's been doing and to her news editor, Joshua McAuley, who's been working with her on these stories. She had another one this week about behind the scenes of how one of these policies is diocesan policies, process by which it's happening in the Boston Archdiocese. And what we're seeing too often with, with the process is that it's not involving LGBT people and hearing from them directly. And um, at the very least, I think we could call for that. So our editorial said, hey, you need to listen to trans people before you craft policies that say how or if they can even exist in your, usually these are referencing schools, but sometimes parishes or other institutions as well. So that's very, very concerning that they're not even doing what I'm considering a baseline. My concern about these policies is that they send the message to a young person, especially if we're talking about a school, Catholic school situation, that if you're struggling, Maybe you're not sure. Maybe this is something that you're struggling with and you don't know and you're trying to explore non-binary things. This is very common. I'm noticing I have two teenagers. I'm seeing it among my friends' children and my children's friends' group. The message is you don't want your kids in a Catholic school and you wouldn't want to go to the church for any help with any of this because they're going to be judgmental and exclusionary and have some of these policies, like they can't have a nickname, can't have a different name, can't use a certain bathroom, can't. In in some cases, the Denver policy is about just LGBTQ families saying you can't have parents of the same gender on the emergency contact form. So you can't have two moms, there's emergency contact. So I mean, why why would families choose Catholic schools? Why would a young person or even an older person who is trying to figure out who they are or struggling with their sexuality, why would they turn to anyone in the church or to church organizations for any assistance or help with that? I'll say this as the product of 12 years of elementary and high school Catholic education and somebody who has many (laughs) degrees, undergraduate and three graduate degrees from Catholic institutions. I, I think if Catholic schools and dioceses and superintendents of Catholic school systems implement these things like we see being discussed in Boston. And again, I also want to add my voice applauding Katie. I think her reporting has been extraordinary. And the piece that dropped this morning in NCR shows exactly this point where in the early stages, a committee that Cardinal O'Malley had tasked with or delegated through an auxiliary bishop to explore this question of what would a policy look like for our schools and for the diocese or for the archdiocese, The committee had reached out to some trans Catholics, including those who've been in ministry for many years in the diocese and in the parishes. And as soon as that kind of went up the chain of command, this person was then excluded. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Well, to finish that one thought, I, I, hearing what you're saying, David, and Heidi, you as well, both of you as parents, but me as somebody who's obviously not a parent, but has many nieces and nephews and it's also interesting, we don't have a term that's not gendered to describe those who are related like a niece and nephew who may not fit into those gender binary categories. Just worth noting, same with aunt and uncle, by the way. But the interesting thing is, I see this with my students, my college students here in St. Mary's and across the country when I lecture at other universities, as well as graduate students that I've taught and mentored. I, I think it's important to realize a couple things. One, the the radical arrogance of people 
who are in positions, again, of gatekeeping, to use David's term from the last segment, in the dioceses and in schools and in political, civil political contexts. But I also commentators, I won't name names, but there are people I'm thinking of who think they know better than the people who's experiencing life themselves. And that is that is just deeply offensive at first glance, but it's also, I think, morally bankrupt. There's no recognition of agency. There's no recognition of experience. We see this all down the line. And so I'll say that as well about, I'm not surprised in Heidi setting, like, why would you turn to the church? And I say, I don't think they should, is because there's also this tendency, and I'm going to be very frank here, we can talk about cisgender dynamics and inequality, right? So we can talk about people who are cis men and women whose gender identity aligns with the sex they're assigned at birth. Well, in the Catholic Church, we have this tradition of those who have canonical and pastoral authority being exclusively male, making decisions that affect men and women. And women very rarely, if at all, have a voice in those decisions, those conversations, those policies. So there's a precedent for this. It's not a good precedent. It's a problem. And I think one of the signs of hope that I see, though I'm, I have to battle my own cynicism at times, is this movement of synodality that goes back to the early church as people like the late Archbishop John Quinn, the great theologian and ecclesiologist, other scholars have been writing about and that Pope Francis has been embodying through this call for a synod on synodality, this listening together, walking together, hearing the Spirit's movement in the lives of people different from oneself. That's the only solution that we have. And that's the only way to be church. Anything else is a monarchy. It is dictatorship. It's fascist. You know, those are strong terms, but let's be honest about what we're saying. If we were in a civil context where this thing plays out and we just talked about it with the AP course situation in Florida, of course, we'd recognize the error in that process. So I think we need to shine that critical lens back on ourselves as a community of faith and say, and hold one another accountable, including our siblings who are in positions of ecclesiastical authority, because they are baptized like everybody else. The Cardinal Archbishop of a diocese, the Pope himself, me as an ordained religious priest, I'm no more, they're no more Catholic than anybody else. We are all the body of Christ, and I think we need to own that. Well, amen to that. Well, first, the editor in me, okay, here's a, you could say, my sibling's child or children. <laughs> Not one word, but yeah. he's Oh, I see. For the niece, nephew, <laughs> uncle, aunt thing. Yeah, for the niece and nephew. But I was really stunned by that. You're right. There is no non gendered way to say that. But anyway, I agree with everything you're saying. I guess my only caveat would be I have personal experience. I don't send my kids to Catholic school, but I know people who work at Catholic schools, and there are Catholic schools that are welcoming on trans students individual schools, it probably involves some research, and generally they're affiliated with religious orders, not with diocesan schools, but it's still a risk, right? Because you don't know when a group could come in or the bishop or someone else could come in and change things. But that's a bold thing to say, Dan, that that, that people in these groups and the parents generally should think about that when they're choosing schools for their kids. Because what if your kid then has, you know, some struggles, they come out as LGBTQ, and then you're in this situation where they're not only not supported, but maybe in the danger, the life and death danger of the high rate of suicide attempts by LGBTQ kids. It is Yeah, I really appreciate that. And if I can just add, I want to build on that to say, I'm actually more worried about the students who don't come out that they're pushed back into the closet, into areas of depression and suicidal ideation and self-harm and whatever, the emotional trauma that's attached with this inability to come out. I think one of the things I look at, you know, I'm an old millennial or a young Gen Xer. I'm right at that boundary, according to to demographers. But what I admire about the younger millennials and what I see so far in Gen Z, which is both of your sets of children are Gen Zers, and the younger college students today are the older echelon of the Gen Z group, is that they happy that they've grown up in a context in which they can be themselves. And I think sometimes it's viewed negatively or critically or as a dirty word to say that they, they're exploring their identity. But this is what everybody does, right? We call it vocational discernment in the church. What is God calling me to do and to be in this world? And so this should be encouraged. When I was going through high school in the 90s, 
I don't think there was a single out person in my Catholic high school. And part of it was a different social context. I, it's hard for my students today to understand that. <laughs> like, the, And I'm so happy for them that they don't know what that's like. But what I see in these sort of policies, and that you were talking about, Heidi, that's got me thinking about this, is the danger of pushing people back into those shadows, into those closets. And in an age where you know, more and more people can be affirmed in who they are and who God has made them to be and are. To be pushed into that is is doubly harmful. We can claim a certain sort of vincible ignorance of ages past, perhaps. It wasn't okay. But now we know better. Or we ought to know better. And I think that makes it all the worse. Yeah. There's so much more openness, true, but also it's still not cool to be gay in a typical U.S. high school. So I think absolutely. there's still a lot of work to be done in all schools. Right? Absolutely. Well, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I just want to say earlier in the conversation, I mentioned the four women that have been murdered so far in 2023. And folks that follow me on social media know that sometimes I get on there and I will say a variation of Jesus is a black trans woman. And I routinely get pushback from comfortable white Christians saying, no, 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 that's heresy, that's blasphemy, whatever. But if we look at Matthew 25, Jesus is promising that anywhere else that Jesus might be found, the place that Jesus promises to be found is among those in our society that we are most wishing would disappear and most wishing we could just push or even make not exist at all. So in Matthew 25, it's the immigrant, it's the sick, it's the person in prison. All of those are categories, but if we expand on that, who right now is the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable? Well, LGBTQ populations certainly, among those transgender populations definitely, and among the transgender populations, transgender women right now, particularly minority transgender women, are like multiple times more likely to suffer violence even murderous violence. So I think that it is theologically not just right, but mandated that we insist on using language that says things like, this is where Jesus is showing up. And when we participate in the exclusion or the murder of these people, even with our silence, we're participating in some way in the crucifixion of Christ. Just to add another theological caveat to that, I'm thinking of the Cappadocians in the early 3rd century who made this point very clearly about the salvific uh, relationship of Christ to all people. And the, the, the famous theological expression or axiom is, that which is not assumed is not saved. And they were exactly debating, is it Jesus's Jewishness? Is it his maleness? Is it his being born in the first centuryness? What is it about who he was and is in history that's salvific? And their point was everything, everything that all of us reflected in the experience of Christ, Christ saves all. And so to your point, David, I think that's exactly right. You know, what is not assumed is not safe. So that means LGBTQ plus folks are saved. Christ is queer in that way. Christ is gay in that way. Christ is trans and intersex and et cetera in that way, because otherwise what we're saying, it has salvific consequences. And I would just add that with these policies that are coming out of dioceses and archdioceses, we can raise our voices. Although, as we're often reminded, the church is not a democracy, so we don't have direct influence sometimes on what these policies are or aren't. Certainly parents can vote with their feet about Catholic schools. But when we're talking about the legislation, like you were bringing up, David, you know, at the state level or even if there's national legislation, there we can have slightly more direct consequences in terms of how we vote or what we advocate for. So I think we need to think of the most vulnerable people when we're making those decisions. Yeah, Heidi, you're exactly right. And it's theologically true when we say that the church is not a democracy. As I like to remind my students and folks that I accompany in ministry, the church is also not a dictatorship. It is no individual or small group or cabal of people's private little club. It is the church of Jesus Christ, and it is the Holy Spirit who's in the driver's seat. Well, to our listeners, especially those who may feel bullied or persecuted or excluded by the church or by your state legislature, I just want to say on no uncertain terms, you are in our prayers and we are standing in solidarity with you. And to the extent that we can be allies and support to you, we are here. We're so grateful for your existence and we're so grateful for the witness to Christ that you bring to the church. It's necessary, it's needed, and don't let the bigots stop it because I think it is vital for us 
as a church to embrace God's extraordinary variety. Unfortunately, it's clear that we're going to be coming back to issues like this because they've come up so many times before. We're grateful for every time that you listen to us bring fresh eyes to these sorts of indignities. But for right now, we're going to need to leave it. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. It's hard to believe how fast time seems to fly. The Christmas season and New Year's felt like yesterday, but the church's liturgical year continues to move forward. Next week is Ash Wednesday, which means the beginning of the season of Lent. Traditionally, the 40 days of Lent mirror the 40 days the Bible says Jesus spent in the desert, fasting, praying, and being tempted by the devil. A season of penance, prayer, and almsgiving in the Christian tradition, Lent is supposed to be a time of reflection and sacrifice, self-evaluation, and conversion. Many Christians take Lent as an opportunity to, quote, give something up or, quote, do something different as an ascetic practice. Lent is a period of time intended in part to interrupt our normal lives, our living of ordinary time, in order to embrace conversion and renew our Christian vocation. The notion of such interruption, especially on the tail of years of global pandemic, the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine, the never-ending political polarization in the country, and so on, it might make some of us just a little reluctant to adopt additional practices of fasting and penance. Listeners often comment to us that they appreciate hearing from our personal experiences, which might include our spiritual practices this Lent. So Dan, why don't you get us started? How are you thinking about Lent this year, and what are you going to do to mark the season? Oh, uh, how did it come up so quickly? That's my initial question. You know, that God is a God of surprises, I suppose, although it's been on the calendar from the beginning of, of the year. You know, I, I've been in, in anticipation of our conversation. I was thinking a lot about what Lent has looked like for me the last few years. And listeners who've been with us, you know, th- throughout all 12 of these seasons may may recall some of our discussions. But I was thinking back actually to uh, Lent 2020. And if you recall, the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic happened right in the middle of Lent. It was that weird year where nobody celebrated Easter in a church together. I was living in a friary, of course, so there were, there were several of us. I was the only ordained presbyter, the only priest, so I presided over the Triduum of Holy Week, and it was just us in the community, you know, and how fortunate, we said this often, how fortunate we were to be able to be in a religious community like that. That Lent was so jarring. Even 2021 was a bit, you know, odd, even though we had that hope of, of vaccines on the horizon, right? And and so I, in many ways, I, I was thinking like, this may be the first Lent that feels regular, where I can kind of embrace the cycle, the rhythm of those, you know, weeks looking ahead to Holy Week, looking ahead to Easter Sunday and in the season of Easter, which, by the way, is 10 days longer than the season of Lent. So for those keeping track, you know, I've had lots of different practices. I I think I've shared in in earlier seasons that, you know, I've kind of moved the giving up of something. In my friar community, we we had kind of made a compromise as a as a community practice. In addition to our individual spiritual practices, that we would maybe give up meat more often when we cooked for one another, and take the money we would have spent on meat and make a donation at the end of the Lenten season. I think that's a great compromise practice. And I know some people find it very valuable to say, like, "Well, I'm not going to eat chocolate, or I'm not going to have alcohol, or something like this." For me. My plan this Lent, my primary practice is going to spend more time with Scripture, and it's deliberate. About six years ago, I published with Liguori Publications a, a Advent and Christmas and a Lent and Easter, two books, uh, respectively, reflections for those seasons. And this year, I'm working on a new Lenten book that will go through Holy Week and Easter. And the, and the focus there is to really spend time with, with the scripture of each day, to reflect on that, to pray with that. And I'm really looking forward to it. So that's just the sort of pattern that I'm establishing. I, I'm, I'm a 
my friends tease me. I'm a very routinized person. I'm a kind of a habitual person. And so if I have that structure, I'll find it easier to kind of enter into that space rather than try to think on the fly or, you know, when, when this episode drops, we'll be six days away from Ash Wednesday and, and, you know, on Mardi Gras, people will start freaking out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? So I, I felt like with the kind of normalcy of, of the season, that's, that's my initial entree into Lent. How about you two? What, what, what are you thinking about this season? Well, I'm in that situation too of not knowing what I'm going to do this year. I wrote a column last week that will run next week that it references Lent and I gave it the, I thought, provocative title of Let's Do Mercy for Lent this year. And so rather than focusing on sacrifice that such an embrace doing for others. So we're t- trying to receive God's mercy during Lent, but also then we need to be that face of mercy out in the world. And so I was referencing that ministry to immigrants that I got involved in here in Chicago and so wanting to do more with that. But I don't know, in many years, I've done like a decluttering thing. This is like, you know, Lent as self-improvement, which I think is spiritually dubious, but a decluttering thing of 40 bags and 40 days of trying to get rid of stuff. But I already did that as part of our whole basement clean out. So I need a new practice. But it's arisen in some conversations I've had with colleagues is a little bit of a friendly, maybe pushback among people who are wanting to do something versus give up. And I'm not going to give up or especially something that seems like from our childhood, like chocolate or ice cream or something like that. And instead I'm going to do spiritual reading or just spend time with scripture. And then other people pushing back and saying, oh, that's that's too positive. You need to do something that's more sacrificial during Lent. I know one thing, I'm not going to judge what anybody else is doing for Lent. That's for sure. And I'm open to thoughts about what might be the best thing for me to do. And I haven't still come to what that is. So maybe this conversation will help me. Well, I'm not sure that I'm going to help you. <laughs> um, so uh, let me just say that over the last couple of years, I have become more cynical about church practices and the kind of church hierarchy. And so my Lenten practices are sort of intentionally corrosive. And let me explain what I mean. I'm trying to actively watch LGBTQ-friendly cartoons with our kids. I'm trying to support trans people who are in my orbit of friendship and family. I'm trying to donate to organizations that support the voices of women in the church, including in the pulpit. And I'm very interested in practicing a kind of radical synodality. And so Lent is a time to double down on all of those efforts against the patriarchal bullcrap of the church. And so that's where I'm at. And listeners are welcome to write me angry letters about it. I will welcome them with charity. But I will just say that is the place where my spiritual walk has brought me in 2023. I'm tired of business as usual. I'm ready for a synodal church that embraces God's extraordinary variety. I'll just say, David, from my perspective, I think what you're what you've named as practices, deliberate practices and kind of disposition is a form of fasting, right? Fasting we associate with food. Let me just take a step back and say, as a member of a penitential order of Franciscans, we are an order of penance. I think penance is misunderstood. We associate penance with the sacrament of, of penance or reconciliation or confession, where it's something you do. Again, this is not the theological meaning, but it's the way a lot of people approach this. I did something wrong. I need to do something to make up for it. And that's not the purpose of penance. It's exactly the opposite of that in the celebration of the sacrament. The exercise of penance is a gesture of goodwill that you do as a sign that you're committed to moving forward, to conversio, to metanoia, to changing your way and following the gospel more ardently moving forward. And so I think fasting, too, is a penitential practice. It's a sign of something that we're committed to. It is a positive thing, not a negative thing. And David, what I like about what you're describing, and I agree with the bullcrap, I think that's exactly right, that there's a fasting that might involve the letting go. Fasting is the surrendering of all the periphery to get to the basics. What can I let go of in order to reorient myself 
to follow the gospel more clearly. And that is a fasting from patriarchal practices, a fasting from homophobic practices or contexts. And I th- I applaud that. I think that's a really interesting and insightful way to approach the season. I love what you just said. I'm going to take that and meditate on that because the thought of penitence and penance being something positive and fasting being not just a self-denial, but also fasting from certain structures of oppression. Mm, I like that a lot. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And see, you said you weren't going to help me. And now you're helping me. <laughs> but the other thing I think about with Lent is that it struck me when you were describing what you're planning to do, David, because it's what you do all year. And Lent is just the time to say, I'm going to prioritize this. I'm going to put special spotlight on this for these 40 days. But like on Easter, it's not like that I get to run to the Easter basket and eat all the chocolate (laughs) I gave up and embrace the patriarchy. Instead, you're going to be carrying that forward in the Easter season and beyond. And so maybe I don't need to think of a Lenten discipline or practice as something that's separate or new that I need to do that I wasn't doing before, but just like a tune-up or a special time to put a little more focus on something that I'm already committed to doing and trying to do as part of my spiritual practices. So thanks for that. You did help. <laughs> I'm always trying to figure out stuff that we could potentially put on a Francis Effect t-shirt and don't eat the chocolate, don't embrace the patriarchy might be a slogan. I really like that. <laughs> well, and a call back to the last segment, I'd argue for the church is not a dictatorship. I think that's like another good shirt too. So, I, Amen, yeah. <laughs> we're, although we're becoming too consumeristic. Sorry, listeners. But if, you, or if you're craving some of the swag, email us, I guess. We'll figure this out. But I think what you were saying, Heidi, too, is really important. It reminds me of some of the insights of the great 20th century theologian Karl Rahner. And when he talked about that we live in a world of grace, that we've been misled, unfortunately, from a certain kind of Aristotelian imposition on what was an Augustinian understanding of God's work in the world. The Holy Spirit is grace, and that grace is uncreated. It is the gift of God's self to us. And with Thomas Aquinas and others who had interesting theories themselves said, well, there's this created grace, and all of a sudden the sacraments, the church, the hierarchy, all these things were viewed as sort of grace dispensers. I used to think of it as like Pokemon. You go to the sacraments because you got to catch them all, right? You got to get as much grace as you possibly can. But I think one of the things that Rahner talks about is like the sacraments, our church life, our communal worship, penance, these sorts of things, they're not meant to be, you were spot on, like it's not meant to be an extra or a one-off, but rather to help hone our attention to what is always already present. And I think that could be a way for a lot of our listeners and for us ourselves to enter into the season, which is what is one or two things that I can hone in on. You mentioned some. For me, I'm, fo- I'm going to focus on Scripture. That's something that I'm just drawn to this season, and it's tied to this context that I'm working through. But I think that maybe it's just mercy. You said this thing earlier about mercy and desire mercy. I think stuff like that is is so easily overlooked when we when we unfortunately box ourselves into limited opportunities. We're all still third graders running around giving up chocolate for Lent and going to confession talking about how many times we disobeyed our parents or something like that instead of looking at the deeper issues. And I would just add that you mentioned, Dan, about how Lent was not normal in any way during the pandemic. So so many of us were already fasting from so much of regular life, being with people in person and such. And so I'm always remembering, too, that people who are grieving and especially for whom the grieving is recent, that first Lent can always be pretty difficult because just the focus on death to self, real death, death and resurrection, it can feel like something that you're already struggling just to get through the day if you're dealing with grief. And so not feeling the need, but there's this pressure that you feel like your religion is asking you to take on some additional pain and suffering. And so I know when I was going through a divorce, that was the first time that I felt like I had to abandon traditional Lenten practices because it wasn't mentally healthy for me when I was going through a grieving process. So thinking of those people during Lent too and hoping that maybe this conversation can help people to think about Lent differently. So Heidi, I think you bring up a really good point too that is really key, that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to how to anyone's spirituality, first and foremost, but then also how we mark the season of Lent like we do all liturgical seasons. It's a calendar, it's a marking, it's an experience of time and space as much as it is you know, a changing of practice. 
And so that's a really important reminder. The, the last thing I think I would add, just to reiterate something that all three of us have been talking about, is that it's not about suffering for its own sake. It's not about deprivation for its own sake. I think about this a lot, too, in terms of Franciscan spirituality, because Francis of Assisi was known to be somebody who embraced wholeheartedly evangelical poverty. And I think a lot of people think of that as they hear the word poverty and they think of abject misery or, or lacking those basic things necessary for human flourishing. And for him, it was about what you were saying, David, in your own kind of modern practices. It's about going back to the basics. What can I get rid of that's keeping me in the way of relationship? So if that's all maybe we think about in these 40 days, it's a renewal time for us to think about what are those things, material and immaterial, the judgments, the prejudices, the assumptions, as well as the things that clutter our lives that get in the way of relationship people we know, people we love, but also the strangers we meet. And those are the things maybe we should let go of, we should fast from, we should, you know, move move on from and turn away, conversio. So I know that the three of us will be keeping each other in prayer and maybe touching base and following episodes throughout the season, but we're wishing you all a blessed journey as Lent begins, and we will be returning back to you with our next episode well into that first week of Lent. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.